Today's Animal Spirits is brought to you by Ycharts. Welcome to Animal Spirits, the podcast that takes a completely different look at markets and investing. Hosted by Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson, two guys who study the markets as a passion and invest for all the right reasons. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. So Tom Sarafagus alerted me to this. This tweet is from January 24th. And he showed a really great chart of SPY's market share of the S&P 500, which has gone from almost as much as 80% back in the fall of 2010. And it looks like today it's below 50%, which is pretty wild. So obviously, there's been a lot of diversifying amongst funds. And part of it probably has to do with the fact that a lot of the bigger players have decided it makes sense to get into this space. I think it's... If I, I mean, I think it's just an expense ratio story. So at nine four five basis points, I guess I think that's what it is. SPY is no longer; it still is dirt cheap. Let's not be ridiculous, but it's not as cheap as it could possibly get. So the other more interesting line on this chart shows that even though the percentage of total assets in the S and P five hundred is down to about fifty percent, it's still nearly like looks like around ninety five percent of turnover. So it is definitely the vehicle of choice for traders, and not just not just uh, pajama traders, but like big money traders. Right, because the average holding period, I think Morningstar did this last year, was like 22 days or something ridiculous. That actually seems high. Yeah, it, it actually does. So I, I, I'm sure there's some, there's got to be some long-term holders in this that you'd hope. But I put out a piece last night, and I talked about like what would seem crazy in a couple decades in the asset management industry. And I think I asked you for to help me with this one, and you give me you drew a blank but thanks a lot (laughs) (laughs) hold on hold hold on hold on (laughs) what i think happened and maybe i'm misremembering the story i think you gave me a list of five things and then i that you you took all the low-hanging fruit and i had nothing else (laughs) i I took the good ones so anyway one of my things was i think in a few decades people look back and say it's crazy that anyone ever paid anything for a for an index fund like this and maybe in the future someone pays you a la like a credit card rewards program. And someone sent me a tweet. And I, I think this person is from Japan. And they said, actually, Japan's two biggest brokerages offer points, like a point system. And I don't know if it's depending on how often you trade or how much money you have or what. And then you can use those points to buy more shares in stocks. So it's almost like these brokerages are paying them a dividend or a kickback to then buy more shares, which I think, like, couldn't you totally see Vanguard and iShares doing that in a few years? If something like SPY is is having trouble attracting investors some of these bigger places. Don't you think that's like the next obvious step for them? I could see like Robinhood doing something like that. Yeah, that for the millennial types, I could see that too. So there's an article that picked up on this from the Wall Street Journal. Investors yanked a record $25 billion from U.S. stock exchange traded funds in January, even as the market soared. The two biggest losers, two ETFs accounted for $19 billion of the $25 billion, even as the S&P gained 7%. Let's see. So it was IVV, which lost more than $7 billion, and SPY, which lost more than $12 billion. So now, some perspective, this is just 1.4% of assets in U.S. equity ETFs, so it's not quite as bad as the headline makes it out to be. But I guess the question is, a lot of this could be explained from like maybe tax loss harvesting, but 
if the money, if all this money came out of these two products, where are they going? Is it possible investors are diversifying more and going into other types of products, or are we just building up cash on the sidelines? Well, okay, so a few things, and we're going to put this in the show notes from Y Charts. And oh, by the way, again, if you sign up for a new subscription with Y Charts and Mental Animal Spirits, you get twenty percent off. So they have a table showing fund flows for different S&P 500 products. This is wild. Over the last year, $42 billion has come out of SPY. Out of a base of? I think it was a high of, hold on, let me just see right here. I think the high was like 280 maybe. Wow. Okay. So it's a lot. And over the same time, VOO, which is Vanguard's ETF, has gotten $13.5 billion. IVV has gotten $5 billion. And Vanguard Mutual Funds obviously have taken in money as well. And the collective on this chart shows for the three of these funds, it's what looks like about $500 billion, which is is fairly insane. And obviously, the biggest gains have come from Vanguard and iShares. So the first mover advantage that Spiders had in this thing, which I think was the first year in 93 that this came out. Yeah. They actually had that first mover advantage for a long, long time. And obviously... There's no way to change this unless they lower the fees, and they haven't really done that. Over the last three years, assets under management from IVV and VOO looks pretty neck and neck, and I think they both charge four basis points. They both gained 161% in terms of their assets. Over the same time, SPY is up just 50%. So I think think that this is definitely a trend that continues. And again, we're arguing, I mean, it's five basis points, but I guess when you're managing tens of billions of dollars, that's real money. Right. And especially all these firms, that's their whole thing is, is scale and figuring out the scale. So yeah, I, I'm sure how much of that growth in SPY has come just from market growth too. Or I'm sure a lot of it isn't even just assets. So moving along, did you see this article from friend of the show, Tara Siegel Bernard in the New York Times? Yes. So there's a really good stat in here. The growth of your portfolio is largely determined by when you started investing and when you retire which obviously we know, but this is some good data right here. Let's say a person saved 15% of their earnings during a 30-year career. If that person retired in 1982, they would have accumulated just over five times their final salary. If they retired in 2000, however, they would have amassed 17 times their salary. So we talk about this a lot of time, uh, all the time, but a lot of this is just out of our hands. And this gets back to our discussion a couple weeks ago about star managers. Like The best thing you could do to become a star manager is start your career in the early 80s, right? Yeah. William Bernstein wrote about this in one of his books. I can't remember which one, one of his short ebooks, where he showed kind of a similar thing, either 10% 10 or 15% of your savings. How could you get to the point where you could use the 4% rule and flipping that around? How could you get to the point where you had 25 times your needed money saved? And it wasn't a contest. It was like 19 years to get there, starting in the 80s and 90s, wherever, wherever else you needed 30, 40 years or whatever. Yeah, that sounds like a lot to amass 25 times. Yes, that's a, and obviously that doesn't include things like Social Security. That's just your portfolio. But that that's kind of, if you want to use the 4% rule, that's kind of the idea yeah. that you need 25 times, which, yeah, how many people can actually get to that point? So she wrote, traditionally, investors reduce their exposure to stocks as they approach retirement. But one novel approach is to cut exposure even further, then get back into the market as you age. And I guess she spoke to Wade Fow. Did I say that right? The P has to be silent, right? Sounds right to me. And Michael Kitsis, 
So for example, portfolios that started with about 20 to 40% in stocks at retirement and then gradually increased to about 50 or 60% lasted longer than those with static mixes or those that shed stocks. What do you think? Of, I thought this was kind of interesting. I never thought about it this way. So the, the obvious idea here is that a huge bear market at the outset of retirement could potentially set you back. And so the, the idea is, and I've heard of this before, where you, you lower your stocks at retirement. I guess a lot of it comes down to that stuff we talk about, the sequence of return risk, and a lot of that is obviously out of your hands. I guess it's trying to combat that. And especially if, I guess part of it comes down to, are you actually taking money out of your stocks or not? So there's so many different questions that you could raise here in terms of the withdrawal strategy. I think it's hard to say. I think that this would be behaviorally very difficult. Let's say that you retire and for the next seven years, you're taking money out. And let's say that the market is you know, doing what the market does up and down. And maybe there's a 18% correction or whatever, but, but nothing that terrible. And then let's say that you're 73 years old and the market really gets killed. The market goes down 40% or whatever. Is it realistic that at that point in your life, you're going to increase your stock exposure but from a behavioral point of view? Yeah. And looking at it from the other side, let's say you retired in 2009 when the markets are low and you pat yourself on the back because you reduced your stock exposure. And then 10 years later, stocks are up three or 400% and you realize how much you miss. And I guess the, the good thing about this type of strategy is it doesn't say go to zero. It doesn't say go all bonds. It's, it's saying to step back a little bit. But obviously, it's, it's so path dependent that it's kind of hard to say. All right. What's this article you got in here? Last week, we talked a little bit about institutional investors and their huge move into alts and got some good feedback. And one of the pieces of feedback we got came from a paper in Omaha. And they looked at this $770 million pension in Omaha, and they kind of tied it to to Buffett a little bit. But it's pretty crazy. So this pension plan made huge, huge moves in their portfolio in 2007. And my biggest thing with alts is not that alts per se are horrible in every situation. I don't think that's the case, but I think the, the way that these funds use them is. And so this strategy shows that this fund made enormous changes. And so there's a there's a chart in here that shows their asset allocation from 2007 to 2017. And it, it's kind of interesting because it shows it changing over the years. So they went from 60% in stocks in 2007 to 30% in 2017. And then we took alts from 25% to 53% or 54%. And bonds kind of have actually remained static, even though they changed along the way. So your point is probably that people want alternatives to stocks and bonds after st- after traditional assets don't yeah, do well. Yeah, of course. And so this this fund, the, they said that they bailed on the stock market in 2008 and put most of the assets into alternatives, including real estate funds in Mumbai, India, international shipping companies, Ukrainian agriculture, oil companies in Kazakhstan and Brazil, timberland in Tennessee distressed housing in Florida, New Jersey, and Nevada, and more. What's the problem? <laughs> it's, it's diversification, right? And so it said it turned one of the nation's best-performing pension funds into one of the worst, and their shortfall went from like, they went from like $138 million shortfall to $771 million shortfall in 10 years. And actually last year, they had to slash their budget by $30 million and... 19 of 19 million of which went right to the pension. So they actually had to cut money for taxpayers and kids that would have gone to like help the community. That would have and so that's my biggest thing with with these alts. It's not necessarily just having an allocation to them. It's when did you do it and why? And that was the biggest problem I saw with a lot of these institutions is just the fact that they went to these alts 
at the wrong time, and they went in heavily because of what happened in 2008. It's hard to feel bad for really rich people that have that are losing money or not doing as well and whatever. Right. But obviously, when it's like affecting people on this sort of level, it's like yes, it, it, this is where it actually like people forget sometimes these big institutional funds, like the beneficiaries of these funds, are actually real people, and the money is actually being used for something, not just for changing asset allocations and, and making interesting moves with your investment committee. So, kind of piggybacking off the alt thing, AQR put out a paper last week called "Demystifying Illiquid Assets: Expected Returns for Private Equity," and they went through a, a whole host of things to come to this. And, and I don't, it's always kind of hard to do these expectations, obviously. But they found, and this is kind of crazy. So they 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 figure that over the coming years, U.S. <laughs> what <laughs> did I mess that up? No, he didn't. Oh, what are you laughing? But. At? Uh, you said they they a few times, and it reminded me of the scene in uh, Step Brothers, where he's like, "They they give you the tools that you need to succeed," or something like that. We talk about his new job. Okay, do you know what I'm talking about? I think I I haven't seen it enough to know the question uh, on that one. I'm sorry. Right, sorry. I know that's one of your all time favorites. I, I need, right. maybe I need to rewatch it again. Yeah, absolutely do. Okay. Anyway, sorry. They, where were you? <laughs> they said. They're estimating a expected return for private equity of 9.6% gross, which sounds pretty good. But on a net of fee basis, that comes out to 3.9%. And their comparison, and this is on a real basis, they they said public equities return estimate would be 3.1%. So they, I was about to say, are 3.1% real returns that bad if we got that? Yeah. So the, it's interesting. So they, But the other part is they said they think private equity will have an 80 basis point premium over public equities going forward. And but they don't think that this is some sort of illiquidity premium. This is just a premium because it's higher risk, almost like you're investing in small caps or micro caps. So if you look at this this chart they put in here, and they went back to 1998, they put valuations between public and private companies. And back in the late 90s and early 2000s, you had this enormous gap between the so they had the EBITDA to enterprise value, which is just a simple way of doing like a price to price to book or whatever for private companies. It's just a different value method, and it was a huge gap in the valuations going until about 2007 and it's completely closed and i think this is another way of like thinking about the way that these things exist these these opportunities and they're gone because everyone piles into them like these pension funds and now the valuations for public and private institutions are basically the same yeah that's a good chart so i don't know what trying to come up with expected returns for these these things are it's i think it it probably helps set your expectations correctly but I think if you were to tell it, the institutions that are investing in these private equity funds that that would be their expectation, they would they would laugh at you because they're expecting to get fifteen to twenty percent IRRs in these things. Yeah. So there was an article from Bloomberg: Hedge fund Rentech created the ultimate tax free IRA account for employees. Did you see this? Yeah, it's really it's really great that all those billionaires that run the world's greatest hedge fund are also getting unbelievable tax breaks. You know. Well, another great thing is that Roth IRAs. Do not require workers to take distributions in retirement, right. and can be passed along to their heirs, which yeah. is just tremendous. I mean, it's it's great to see these guys finally catch a break. So the firm terminated its four hundred one k plan in two thousand ten, and then they rolled it into traditional IRAs, and then did the uh, conversion, and then paid all the taxes up front. So now, as of late twenty seventeen, IRA assets exceeded six hundred sixty million dollars. Uh, representing an eightfold jump in five years. Not a bad gig if you can get it, I guess, huh? 
And, and this is the one that they can invest in there. So they have the medallion fund, which is so it's like... The, yeah, the good one. Right. Which is, what does it do? Like 80% a year or something? And that's the one that no one outside of Rentech can invest in? Yes. And they still, I think because they have to limit its size, so they like do distributions every year and can we get back the money. When this guy dies, Simons, can we do like a ready player one for him where like he puts the secret sauce in a backpack somewhere and hides it and then all the quant fund managers have to like solve puzzles and riddles to go find it so he can actually tell us how they're doing it? So it says the fund has historically averaged annualized returns approaching 80%. And when you're doing 80%, you can charge 5% and 44%. But they, do they even need to charge fees because it's just internally now? That, I mean, that's I what know, the man. fees were, I guess. But wouldn't it be great? I, yeah, I would love to. Do, do you think I would? Yeah, it would just be. I wonder if it's like just even. Let's just say that they said this is our formula or multiple, multiple formulas. I'm sure they're doing a bazillion things. Is it like, would it be English? Would you be able to understand what they're doing? Do you think? Well, you remember they in that More Only Than God book, which is probably the best book ever written on hedge funds. They tried to kind of explain it in a roundabout way of doing it, they said, we use signals that wouldn't make sense intuitively. So they just, but they also come in and out and they, they change the signals constantly. So I'm guessing it's some sort of machine learning driven thing that is constantly changing. I don't know. There was a great video with Simon's a few years ago at MIT. I don't think it's on YouTube anymore. I think it was taken down. But he said, he was talking about how like when trend following stopped working or it worked amazingly well. And then obviously worked less well than it used to. Interestingly enough, as good as they've been in that fund, they've tried some other funds like a managed futures or trend following thing and some long only equities and they haven't done nearly as well. So whatever they're doing in that one fund, it just kind of goes to show you that yes, there is like that unicorn somewhere, but you're not going to be able to access it and and they won't tell you how they're doing it anyway. So it doesn't really matter. What if it's just like the Super Bowl indicator? They're just doing stupid shit like that. <laughs> That's what they mentioned in the fund, where they they would use stuff like that that shouldn't matter. But it, I'm sure it's a little more, you know, than that. Maybe they use that. Remember the one about Nicolas Cage and like people dying in pools or whatever. That how they're correlated with each other. Oh yes. All right. So there was an article in Barron's over the weekend talking about a star stock picker who is a tiger cub named Steve Mandel that I've never heard of. Have you heard of him? Yes. So apparently he's a big deal. Yeah, I mean he's one of the well-known guys who and his track record has actually like made it through the last decade or, or whatever. And he's, I think he's, he's one of the, these hedge fund guys who has kept more of a lower profile. His name is kind of in the discussion usually with some of the best, best stock pickers, but he keeps a lower profile, which has probably helped him. So his, he has a long short fund that ran a net exposure of just 50%, about 50%. And since its inception in 1998, it's done 14.4% net of fees compared to the S&P 500 6.6% return of the same period, which is superhuman. Like, oh my God, those are ridiculous numbers. Yeah, that's impressive. So that means he a- he actually made money on his short positions more than likely, which is saying more than you can for a lot of hedge fund managers, especially recently. I thought this was kind of uh, interesting given his uh, his track record. So last year, the fund declined 5%, which is in line with the overall market and doesn't seem that bad at all. The firm received net year-end redemptions of 15%. Wow. So it didn't give him a very long leash, huh? Isn't that insane? Like This guy's track record is probably running it with a, with a 50% net long exposure and able to return these numbers is just like crazy good. And, Again, and still- I, I, I keep harping on it, but this is why the manager of managers approach is so hard for these institutions because- they don't have the patience to stick with anyone 
or anything. They just they change and flip flop these things so often that it just ends up. If they would just keep their portfolios the way they are, even if and they're in these underperforming funds, they'd probably do better than what they. The alternative is for what they actually do, which is switch out at the bottom and get into another one at the top. What's this accounting for time article? So researchers at Harvard did this study where they tried to put a price tag on time. And and I wanted to run some of these by you because it's interesting. They said that spending more time with others, like having a meal with friends or family, is the happiness equivalent of getting a $3,600 bump in your annual salary. Yeah, I buy that. And the other thing is outsourcing to have people do stuff for you like chores gives you an annual income boost of about $18,000. Wait, hold, hold on. Let me cut you off right there. Okay. Well, who are they asking? I mean, this the, the answers are going to be very different for a 25-year-old making $45,000 versus a 42-year-old making $120,000. That's good. Uh, what do you mean that's good? I don't know. I don't know what the survey data is. You know how, how well we're into surveys, but I'm, that's why I'm just... I, I don't know exactly what the... Uh, what the what they st- what's the baseline here? All right, so carry on. So what was the $18,000 thing? Okay, if you outsource your chores, like cleaning, maybe cooking, that sort of thing, it gives you an $18,000 boost in income. They also found... Here's an interesting one. Well, let me ask you one, one last question. Okay. So outsourcing chores you dislike is, is equivalent to an annual income boost of $18,000? Yes, let's just, happiness. Let, let's just say that that's true. Yes. Do you think anybody would give up $18,000 in order to do that sort of stuff? Like, I feel like if, if God said to you, hey, Ben, now you have to mow your lawn, now you have to do this, now you have to do that, and I'm going to give you $18,000, don't you think you would take the $18,000? Potentially. That, that's a pretty big bump. But Yes. Yes. I can, see the, I can see how the happiness quotient fits in there because I think paying for time is definitely worth it in a lot of cases, and that's something that I do, but I don't think it's worth that much. You know what, Ben? This, this podcast is like an annual income bump of $75,000. <laughs> that's true. That's true. And so they also found that vacation is the most egregious misuse of time. And so their survey, they found 75% of employers who got eight vacation days a year did not take them all. And 40% used fewer than eight days and 31% took fewer than four days. And they found that taking eight days of vacation or more a year is equivalent to 4,400 increase in annual income in terms of happiness. Uh, I think you lost me. I'm confused. Okay. The happiness bump is even more significant for someone who makes over $100,000. Basically, it's just it's just, this is just saying time and experiences are worth way more to you in terms of happiness than than you realize. Okay, that I am fully on board with. I think trying to quantify happiness is just a weird sort of premise. Wait, what's this? You say boiler room is not underrated. Oh, explain okay. yourself. I will explain myself. So I very Wait, much before enjoy- we get into this, I will say I wrote a piece about Hollywood and how it what it taught me about investing, and I said. Boiler Room is an underrated movie. I'm not saying Boiler Room is underrated in terms of a finance movie. Boiler Room is underrated in terms of all movies in the 2000s. That's what I'm saying. But anyway, continue. Okay. So I very much enjoyed your piece, even though I was unable to contribute it because you took all the low-hanging fruit. <laughs> okay. But my not that I think that Boiler Room is not a good movie. I think it's a great movie, and I think it is properly rated. Okay. But my contention is that because of the internet these days, nothing is properly related. Okay, so I can't but stick with that one. I think you're just pulling yourself and making it up. Okay. This is a survey of one. I'm the blog writer. Right. But but you yes. can't just decide that Boiler Room's underrated. Okay. I feel like it's a movie that only finance people appreciate. That Okay. That might be true. Okay. How's that sound? Fair. Good. Yep. Okay. Let's move on to... Oh, before we go into some listener questions, I just have a credit card story because 
last week we kind of harped on the banks a little bit for not paying people money. And, and I'm not a huge fan of big banks. Obviously, that's not really going out on a limb and giving a hot take there. But I think big banks are good for something. And so last week, I think it was on Wednesday morning, I got up and I had a text and an email from my bank saying, someone is trying to use your credit card in Dallas. It's suspicious activity. They're trying to buy a Coca-Cola for $2. And did you make this yes or no? So reply no. And immediately someone calls me and says, hey, there's suspicious activity on your fund. Did you make these purchases? Again, I say no. They say, all right, your card is being canceled right now. You'll have a new one to you tomorrow morning, overnighted. Like, Terrific. So that that's like one of the good things about big banks is that they can actually they actually spend money on this type of fraud prevention. Like, do you remember in the past how crazy it would be if your credit card information got stolen? How like nerve wracking it would be? Counterpoint. What yes. would you say? What would you say to short the bankers long, <laughs> long? What is it? Long what? Am I butchering this? I don't know. I don't know what saying you're trying to get out of here. That's pomp saying. Short the bankers or sh- long the spreadsheets. Long the spreadsheets. Because right, of either, long the algorithm. Bitcoin. Yeah. Right? Either way, you're right. That is a fantastic service. That happened to me a few times. Speaking of the Bitcoin thing, so you we saw this. I don't know if we mentioned this or not. The, the story about the guy who had the Bitcoin exchange worth a couple hundred million dollars and he died and he had the only password for all this cryptocurrency money. Conspiracy theory. He's not really dead. He stole Ooh. everyone's money. Right? Did you yes. see this? Like this guy, there's no, oh, I, I'm dead and the password is gone. Like, are we sure this guy's dead? We're not sure. I haven't did found we, his body. Did we get a verification? Did they do the Bin Laden thing where they dumped him in the middle of the ocean? Very good. I'm just saying, right. that's, that's my conspiracy theory of the week. Listener questions. Just curious, what are your thoughts on frequency of rebalancing in a 401k or other retirement accounts? Does the lack of tax implications impact your analysis? I don't know that it really matters. We've, we've done a lot of pieces on this over the years where it's kind of like horseshoes and hand grenades. Whatever you do, it, it honestly doesn't really matter. Some people make the argument that you could wait two or three years to allow momentum to work. Right. Some people make the argument you could do it over six months or quarterly or uh, semi-annually or annually. Honestly, it doesn't really matter. I don't think that much unless you, as long as you stick with a certain plan. But well, the other good thing about 401k... Sorry, to keep cutting you off, but I'm going to do it <laughs> no, again. No, you're on a roll. Go. <laughs> With a 401k, when you're putting in new contributions, you're kind of rebalancing in some ways already. Eh, sort of. Not really. Not all the way. Okay. Well, what do you think? Okay. So I think that it doesn't matter in terms of it's not going to make a difference on your life. So I agree with you there. Right. But it, it definitely will matter to terminal wealth. However, you're not going to know ahead of time what's the optimal rebalancing schedule. So I think that less is better than more. But I don't know that once a year or once every other year, once every three years, I, you know, nobody can tell you ahead of time what's what's going to work best. The good thing about the most of the fund firms that I've worked with over the years is that you can set a frequency on your own to do it automatically. And I think that's the biggest thing is just have it be automatically so you don't have to think about it and try to remember to do it. You know, set it for your birthday, set it for January 1st, whatever. I, I would just set it automatically and then leave it alone. All right. Do I put more money towards paying off the mortgage or should I put more money into retirement savings? A little background info. This guy and his wife are both in their late 50s or early 60s. They currently contribute 24% of their income to retirement plans, which is very commendable. They have six years left on their mortgage. It's a 15-year mortgage with a 4.5% interest rate. All right. I've heard enough. Okay. Sorry. But they're saying, should we dial back the 24% we're saving to pay off the mortgage to get it done sooner and then add more to the 401k? Yes. So... I think that they should because four and a half percent is a pretty decent rate, but it's you know, how confident are you that 
that stocks and bonds for the next five, 10 years are going to do better than that. I'm not that confident. And I think that there is a huge is psychic income, the right phrase here. I think you use it right there. Yes. Okay. A uh, huge psychic income to like being done with your mortgage. I think that that's a huge just pressure yeah. off. I and think- also like if you're, if they're, if they're contributing 24%, I would think that their retirement plan is probably in decent shape. So then they, that they could afford to scale back a little bit. I, I think as long, my whole rule of thumb would be have your mortgage paid off before you retire for sure. Because I don't think you can, can, can put a price on that, like how comfortable that could make you feel just having that debt out of the way. It just what, gives you so much more flexibility and a margin of safety. What if you're in the fire movement and you retire at 30? Then what? If you're in the fire movement and you retire at 30, that means you're living in a van down by the river and not owning a home probably. I don't know. Could you do a reverse mortgage from a van? <laughs> By the way, we're only joking. Please do not send the same. <laughs> they usually address to you, so I'm fine with that. <laughs> All right. What recommendations do you got? Okay. So I started reading Grant by Ron Chernow last week. I, I, I'm not, I don't have enough patience to read the whole thing like you. Right. Uh, you read cover to cover, right? Yes. 960 pages. I'm kind of bouncing around and I was looking for some specific stories for something I'm writing about. And so I read a lot about- Oh, it's, I, it's, I, it's, it's, it's at the end. Yes, I tried to get some specifics about like. Didn't you write about that already? His background, I, I did, but I'm writing something else. Okay. And then I read all about his Ponzi scheme, and but here's the thing, I'm like, hold, 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 hold on, hold on. He was a victim. Yeah, right. He was Jeez. part of it. I mean, but, are you accusing yes. the ex-president of the United States of a Ponzi I mean, scheme? The the funny the thing I really liked about Chernow is the fact that he really like defended Grant. He almost sounded upset that the way that he's been portrayed over the years as someone who had all these things go wrong in his account. and Well, he, like the alcoholism um, seemed to like come up over and over. And I feel like he, he had it under control, I think. But his enemies used that against him like over and over and over. Yes, it was it was very good. But my here's, here's the other thing I thought about this as someone who's written a book before. And I looked at all of the different sources he used. How big of a research staff does he have helping him prepare for a book like this? I don't know. That's a great question. I know that Washington took him literally six years to write. Wow, that's it, it, it's really impressive. That it's really good. But but don't you, the, don't you think? I I know the the book is ridiculously long, but he's an excellent writer. Oh, it's very good. And but I think it's interesting. Like you can see how much he like respected Grant after writing this because he was sticking up for him. But also when he talked about the stuff with the Ferdinand Ward guy about the Ponzi scheme, he he also said like, listen, Grant was extremely naive in this stuff and it was interesting that he was kind of giving it was almost like he treated him like a family member which yeah. is uh, maybe you feel like you know someone that much after you put so much yeah. research in him but it is it is really good and he's that's the first book of his i've ever read so it's it's pretty amazing by the way the cover of that book looks like just like robin williams yeah i could see i did yes it does it looked like a running of him. I really enjoyed the the Ray Romano special on Netflix. He actually he does it at the Comedy Cellar, but halfway through he goes. He has a camera crew follow him. He does half a set at the Comedy Cellar and half a set at the other Comedy Cellar around the street. Which I, you never told me that there was another one before. Okay. Anyway, there's another one, and he took it. And I would say the second half is better than the first. So if you don't like the first like ten minutes, it takes him a while to get warmed up. But by the end, the last half hour is just he is really good. And I may have mentioned this story before, but the first time my wife and I came to New York, actually, it was for my quote-unquote interview with Ritholtz Wealth Management. <laughs> I don't know if you really count it as an interview, but I, we were there for a few days, and you told us you have to go to the Comedy Cellar if you're comedy fans, and Ray Romano came in and did a set there. 
And this was, I guess, and the rest is and the rest is history. (laughs) (laughs) And I fell in love with that place. And some of the stuff he did that night, he said he was kind of working out, was actually on the Netflix special, which was kind of interesting. So uh, I, yeah, it was it was really funny. He's he's a better stand up than I would have anticipated. I didn't really realize he started in stand up. So it's it's very good. So I I like that one too. And I think that's all I got. All right, so I read The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. I really, really liked his book, Nobody Wants to Read Your Shit. This was a very quick read, and I'd say that 70, I don't know, a lot of it I didn't really care for, but there was like five or six things that I really like actually stopped and thought about, and I'll read you just one passage. The subtitle is Break Through the Blocks and Win Your Your Inner Creative Battles, and it's basically just talking about like procrastinating and overcoming all that shit, and so here we go. If you find yourself criticizing other people, you're probably doing it out of resistance. When we see others beginning to live their authentic selves, it drives us crazy if we have not lived that our own. Individuals who are realized in their own lives almost never criticize others. If they speak at all, it is to offer encouragement. Watch yourself. Of all the manifestations of resistance, most only harm ourselves. Criticism and cruelty harm others as well. So I don't really love like the sort of philosophical self-help stuff. Certainly not on Twitter. I, I, you know, it's pretty offensive. Yeah, this on would. Twitter. Be, I was going to say this would be a good book for LinkedIn and Twitter people. Yeah, no, but but reading it in the book is, is a little bit different. And he just he has some I love, really. I love Pressfield. He's really good. Yeah, he has some really good ideas that that uh, applied. So again, a lot of the book I could I could do without, but there's some there's some stuff worth worth reading, and it's it's very quick. It's only it's only like 150 pages. When I reached out to another author before I was going to write my first book, the first thing he told me is read The War of Art. And that's like oh, his okay. thing he goes to when he when he's writing the book to like per, have perseverance and keep going and don't stop. And so yeah, I read that one a while ago. I liked it. So he he quoted somebody like, "Do you write every day or whatever?" And the and the guy said something along the lines of, "Oh, here here it is." He said, "I write only when inspiration strikes. Fortunately, it strikes every morning at nine o'clock sharp." <laughs> Not bad. That's pretty good. Okay, so I know we mentioned this last week, but somebody on Twitter told us to watch the five. I finished it and I very much enjoyed it. Where are you? I'm three or four episodes in. I like it. Okay. It's, it's yeah. It's it's definitely got a good story. The very first episode hooks you in. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so I finished it. Thank you for recommendation. It was very good. All right. So I have a high threshold for shit movies. I really do. <laughs> um. <laughs> however, so I like you know aliens and sci-fi and that sort of stuff. So I was going to go see the Predator in the theaters when it came out, but thank God I didn't because the reviews were that bad. But sometimes is it technically you, a remake or a, or a sequel? No, it's no, it's no. So sometimes when you see when a movie gets really bad ratings, are you almost like, at least sometimes I am, I'm like, right, let me see just how bad it really was. Let me be the judge of that. You know yes, what I mean? Definitely. This was so fucking bad. Like, oh, boy. oh my God. I watched it on the airplane and I was like falling asleep while I was watching it. It's an action movie. It was so bad. The writing, the acting, the everything. It was offensively bad. And again, I, I could tolerate the crap. But this is just god awful. So do yourself a favor. Do not challenge me, and 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 see if yourself. It was really that bad. All right, I think that's all I got. You good? Yep, I'm all good. All right, email us at animalspiritspod at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.